Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. And welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are good. you? <laughs> I'm good. I've told you a little this week. I'm on an engineering kick. I can oh, make yeah. any <laughs> LED light you want blink every five seconds uh, <laughs> on a breadboard. And I know other words like potentiometer. My son's super obsessed with all this engineering stuff now. And it's it's as fun as it sounds. And I like sent Mandy a picture. It literally took an hour for us to get one light <laughs> to turn on. And I looked at it and I was like proud of myself until I saw the picture. And then I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what is my life coming to? Oh my gosh. Um, I love it's rough over here. <laughs> I love all of his phases he goes through whenever he discovers something that he really likes. And yes. it's always the most specific and random things. So and specific. then you are you're into it a hundred percent. For as long as it takes until we get a new thing. I love it so much. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. I love when people say, well, you can just let him learn it on his own. I'm like, I could. Um, but that's just going to be something, somebody coming out crying all the time because they can't figure it out. So I'm right? like, if you're an engineer this week, I guess I'm an engineer. So that's go. where we're at. If Rick Astley comes back, I'm going to need a break. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when you thought Rick Astley was bad? <laughs> okay, but if you heard it as many times as I did, it really, like, I'd rather put an LED light in my skull than not to hear that song. <laughs> well, for your sake, I hope um, I hope the engineering phase doesn't last forever. Short lived, yeah. <laughs> but what it if it does? <laughs> oh, gosh. Then he better make a million dollars, billions of dollars. <laughs> Just like, remember me, because I will long be dead. I will have died of, like, electrocuting myself on one of these things at one point. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of just exactly that type of accident, um, those kind of unfortunate circumstances are actually a part of life that every person faces, hopefully not getting electrocuted, but nobody is really immune to tragedy and horrific events. It does sometimes seem, though, like some people are just more lucky or more unlucky than others. All of us have had at least one minor or maybe even a major case of wrong place at the wrong time that might have led to some kind of stress or a conflict that we had to really fight our way through. But how many times can the same person really be in the wrong place at the wrong time before it just starts getting really suspicious? The man at the center of our story this week certainly found himself in some unfortunate situations at various points in his life. John Bauman was a Chicago native, born in 1941, and he remained in Chicago for his entire life. To be honest, we don't really have a ton of information about John prior to 1970, when he first made himself known to the area law enforcement, but the Chicago Tribune described him as having, quote, the appearance of an easygoing bear of a man with a high voice and glasses so thick his co-workers called him bottles, end quote. I'm really having a hard time picturing a bear of a man with a high voice. Yeah, that's kind of a, it's a very specific picture of somebody though. I can't put it together, but it's very specific. It is. And to be fair, we don't know what bears would sound like if they could talk. Maybe they would have high voices. <laughs> that's true. That is true. <laughs> Didn't think that one through. So we also know that John was married to a woman named Trudy at some point in the early 1960s, but that's really all the background that we have on him. John and Trudy had three daughters, Helen, Kathy, and Elizabeth, and the family lived in the Rickton Park suburb of Chicago. In 1968, John asked a friend of his named Dean Pence about applying to become a Homewood police officer. Dean also worked at that police department, so John wanted this friend to give him a reference. Dean did give a good reference, and John got hired on, but his character started showing less than a year into the job. 
which is never a good look. If you have no. a friend get you hired, don't don't do bad things at that job. <laughs> Ever. No. That's terrible. So he had been working for the department for nine months when suddenly John was caught and arrested for stealing two snow tires from a service station while he was on duty. After this blunder, John resigned from his position and he was sentenced to a year of supervision. After leaving the police department, John became a clock repairman and later a salesman for Honeywell, where he stayed for the remainder of his working years. His friend Dean, who had put in the good word for him, ended up transferring to the Flossmoor Police Department. But months after John resigned from there, he would find himself in contact with officers again in July of 1970. A couple was out for a drive in an isolated and rural area near Frankfurt, Illinois, on July 26th, when they came upon a stopped police cruiser that appeared to be abandoned. The driver's side door was open, but the officer was nowhere to be seen, so the man passing by, Leonard, decided to stop and look around. When Leonard approached the car, he noticed a man wearing a t-shirt and shorts lying in a ditch about six feet away from the car. At first, Leonard didn't know that this gravely injured man was in fact the driver of the police car since he wasn't wearing a uniform, but it was in fact Sergeant Dean Pence, the man who had given John a personal recommendation for the police department two years earlier. Dean had been shot four times with a 38 caliber revolver, twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the face. He was about five miles away from his home at the time. Leonard and his wife got back in their car, and then they drove around looking for somewhere to use a phone. Oh, gosh. The idea of looking for a place <laughs> to call a phone and not just pulling it from the purse. That is, is crazy. Right? To even think people about. people did it. I know. People did it for 100 years before we had I them. know. I think about this all the time where I'm like, and it sounds so... I mean, it's just a, a thing, I guess, because I've all, we, you know we've grown up where there's always been phones. But to even actually think about time before phones, it just is so weird and hard to imagine. Like, what did you do? How did you do things without one? I just don't understand. <laughs> I took my daughter's phone away from her, and she went to school, and she's like, "What if there's an emergency at school?" And then I was like, "Oh my gosh, you're right, you're right." <laughs> <laughs> but like as a kid, I never thought like I need to be able to be in constant contact with my mother, <laughs> right? But now. I'm like, yeah, okay, let's, uh, I get it. So they ended up having to drive about half a mile before they found a home with a phone to call for help. So when police arrived at the scene of this tragic shooting of one of their own, they were really puzzled by what could have happened. There weren't any signs of a struggle or any blood found in the car, indicating that Dean had willingly got out of his vehicle before he was attacked. Furthermore, it was unclear what Dean was doing in that area in his police cruiser. Early theories were that he was working undercover, but those were ruled out when the Flossmoor police chief confirmed that Dean wasn't on duty and he certainly wasn't undercover at the time. Also, if you're undercover, I don't think you'd be driving your police cruiser around, but right. I could be wrong on that one. Yeah. <laughs> so he also said that he had no idea what Dean was doing in the area, but they did know for sure that his police-issued revolver was secured at the station, so he had not been killed with his own service weapon. An intense and very aggressive investigation led the FBI, Will County, and Flossmoor Police to figuring out that John Bauman was the last known person to talk to Dean before he was murdered. Evidence showed that Dean and John met at the murder scene in separate vehicles, allegedly to meet a third party that never showed up. At some point, Dean was forced out of his car and then shot point blank. Obviously, the detectives believed that John was the shooter, which was a theory that was backed up by witnesses' accounts that John thought Dean was having an affair with his wife, Trudy. John was arrested and charged with Dean's murder, but a Will County grand jury actually refused to indict him. They said the evidence against him was nothing more than hearsay, and the case never ended up going to trial. Dean's murder is still unsolved to this day, and John went on with his life without really any trouble for the next 14 years. But then, tragedy struck again. On April 21st, 1984, John, who was now 42, called the police to report a horrific accident that had taken place in the garage of the home that he and Trudy shared in Chicago. When the police responded, they found a gruesome scene. 37-year-old Trudy was found badly burned in the garage, and she was pronounced dead at 9.06 a.m. John told the investigators that earlier that morning, before their daughter woke up, 
he and Trudy were out in the garage together looking at camping equipment for an upcoming trip that they had planned. John said that Trudy was sitting on a blanket, and at some point she picked up a coffee can that had gasoline in it. She didn't know what was inside, so she just started opening the lid and she's talking to John and asking him about, you know, this can and what's inside. Trudy asked John to just get rid of it, and she raised the can up to hand it to him, but some of it sloshed out and spilled on her. Then, as if this wasn't bad enough, Trudy allegedly later had another clumsy moment when she accidentally tipped over a portable camp stove and caused the gasoline on her clothing to ignite. That's a lot of... It's a lot of things that are just weird, like a freak accident that would have to happen. And obviously... In two parts. But that's like some Final Destination movie stuff right there, you know, where it's like... It's just over the top. It's not likely that you would have this specific series of events. and But obviously, there are freak accidents in the Absolutely. world. Things like this do happen. And, and then, you know, we hear the stories and we're just like, wow, that is crazy. And it's just not something that you would ever, you know, think would happen. Right. So John said that Trudy ran around the garage trying to put herself out. He said at some point in the process of trying to extinguish the flames that were engulfing her body, Trudy hurt herself in the throat area. John said that he tried to help save her, but the flames were just too strong and he had to back off. Now, to me, this story is already immediately suspicious because of how out there it is, like we just said. But keeping an open mind, these things could happen. However, once the results of Trudy's autopsy came back, a completely different story emerged. Trudy's death was looking less like an accident and more like something suspicious had gone on. Her autopsy revealed several things that proved John's story was entirely fabricated. For one thing, Trudy had no evidence of soot or smoke in her throat or lungs, and she had low levels of carbon monoxide in her blood, meaning she wasn't breathing or alive when the fire started, as John had stated. Further, it was found that Trudy had actually died of manual strangulation. So it was assumed that she was strangled to death, then doused in gasoline, and then set on fire. Her death was officially ruled a homicide, and John was charged with murder for the second time in his life. And we're going to get into so much more in this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. Having a little human is hard enough. Making sure they're eating well-balanced meals can be even harder. Thankfully, now there's Little Spoon. Little Spoon is the one-stop shop where you can get healthy and easy snack and mealtime foods for your baby, toddler, and big kid delivered right to your door. When my kids were little, I used to spend hours a week cooking vegetables, blending them together, and then freezing them in these little ice cube trays just to pull out throughout the week. Meanwhile, Little Spoon makes everything fresh, and they use absolutely nothing artificial. It's just like the homemade stuff I used to make, but it's actually delicious and delivered right to my door and ready in seconds. You can just pop these meals into the fridge or freezer and just pull them out whenever you're ready to feed your kid. It's really that easy. Little Spoon sent us some of their product, and they are absolutely delicious, are nutritionally balanced, plus they are free of junk. This is such a great way to set your little ones up for a lifetime of eating well-balanced, healthy meals. I tried a few bites of the mac and cheese with invisible butternut squash and carrots, and it's a great way to sneak in some vegetables while your kid enjoys a good old bowl of mac and cheese. Kids today are eating better than adults, thanks to Little Spoon. Best part? The price is right. With kids' meals under $5 and baby food and smoothie snacks under 3 it makes trying Little Spoon easy. Start the new year fresh with Little Spoon. Get 50% off your first order with the code MURDER at checkout. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about John and how his wife Trudy has now died and how he's being put on trial with the charge of murder. So John goes to trial for Trudy's murder on September 9th, 1985. The prosecution simply stated that John strangled his wife to death and then set her body on fire. But the defense stuck with that freak accident theory and even alleged that the medical examiner who performed Trudy's autopsy got it wrong. The defense also said that the prosecution's case was full of reasonable doubt. 
They had their own separate pathologist testify that Trudy died due to the fire, not to the strangulation, and that she was alive when the fire began. The defense's pathologist also said that they found Trudy had elevated levels of carbon monoxide in her system that were consistent with the levels seen in burn victims. This pathologist did admit that he never actually saw or examined Trudy's body in person, but he said he came up with his own professional conclusions based on the Cook County Medical Examiner's report, as well as pictures and other, quote, information for defense attorneys. This guy doesn't right? sound <laughs> like he's really putting in all the work, to be quite honest. So in a crazy turn of events, the jury in the end was not able to fully get on board with the murder allegation, and after four and a half hours of deliberation, they ended up finding John not guilty of murdering Trudy. One juror said that she didn't feel that the state proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's all you need. You just need right. one person. And that's who the defense is looking for, that one that one holdout. So interestingly enough, a few years later in 1988, John's defense attorney from this case, a man by the name of Fred Aprati, was accused and eventually convicted of bribing witnesses, specifically police officers from Cook County, and for hosting a party for prosecutors at a brothel that had recently been raided. So this is like <laughs> everything that you could do wrong all at once. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So John's case wasn't actually specifically listed as one of the cases that Fred bribed a witness in. So we're not sure if he actually paid anyone off in this case or not. But one thing was for sure, the expert who testified for John's defense never saw Trudy's body before confidently telling the court how she did and didn't die. So John managed to escape conviction for the second time and he quickly got back to his regular life. This is crazy to me that somebody could even be associated with people who were murdered and be accused and even charged with their murder and is found, it just gets away both times. Like that's wild to me. It is, and it's not like he knows of these two people. Like these were close people connected enough connection and enough there for police to be like yeah he's going to be charged with this not just you know he's kind of suspicious no he's like going to trial for these things right. it's wild so john soon meets a new love interest named valerie at a dance the two hit it off and began dating so at this point john's in his late 40s and valerie was just entering her 50s valerie was a fellow chicago native and she was born in 1939 she began working for 3M Company in her early 30s, and she eventually went from customer service to becoming a sales coordinator. Valerie held this job for over 20 years, and she was still working there whenever she met John. As is often the case with new midlife relationships, Valerie had already been married before and divorced two times, but she was a hopeless romantic, and she believed there was someone out there for her to spend the rest of her life with. She had three children who were all adults by the time that John came into the picture, and she was also a grandmother. Valerie's daughter Pam later told the Chicago Tribune that her mom was drawn to John. She said he had big, sad eyes and sort of a teddy bear demeanor, which complimented Valerie's energetic personality. I'm starting to be able to pick him up more. He's been called a bear and now a teddy bear. Yeah, but so. sad eyes also helped me picture oh, things sad eyes a little does. bit more. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So John was very upfront with Valerie about his past and told her about the times he had been arrested and charged with murder. But Valerie believed John whenever he told her that he was innocent. Imagine having that conversation with a prospective, like, date. <laughs> yeah, not once, but twice. But also, like, 1985, like, he could have probably not shared it. Like, some idiots now will not tell somebody, you know, something from their past. And it's like, all I have to do is Google your name. Right. Back then, Google doesn't exist. He could have really gotten away with it. I have to give him that. I can't believe he actually told her, but obviously he <laughs> must know it's going to come up at some point. So this new couple has a pretty uneventful relationship for the first few years, but all of that changed whenever tragedy struck yet again in 1995. John and Valerie were 53 and 55 respectively when they took an extended vacation to Antigua and Barbuda. They arrived at the Royal Antiguan Hotel on May 12th, and according to John, this was the eighth time that they'd traveled outside the U.S. together. They were just living it up. Yeah, they were. Yeah. After spending over a week there, the couple went to Barbuda, where they stayed until May 25th. So at the end of the trip, they went back to Antigua with plans to stay a few more days, and then they returned home to Chicago on May 28th. On the day before the couple was set to depart from the island, the couple decided to explore around the hotel. Earlier in the trip, they discovered a staircase that led from the eighth floor, where their room was, all the way up to the roof. 
John and Valerie had gone up there actually on several occasions while they were on this vacation just to look at the view. On the morning of May 27th, they woke up and went to the pool together. And after lunch, Valerie went back to the pool. She'd been drinking alcohol at lunch and even before, but John said that his stomach hurt that day and he didn't want to drink. So he went off to a shop and bought a newspaper and a pack of greeting cards that he happened to see there. Then he went back to the hotel room and opened up this pack of greeting cards and took out two. And he wrote two love letters or little messages to Valerie. He put one of them on her pillow and then put the other one inside of a small plastic bag, which he took along with him. After John was done writing these notes, he went down to the pool to meet back up with Valerie, and they both went back to the room together at around 5 p.m. When they returned to their room, Valerie immediately saw the card on her pillow. After she read the sweet message, the couple decided to go up to the roof for a romantic moment. John took the other note that he wrote with him in his pocket. So once they got up on the roof, they stepped out onto this tiled area and they looked at the view while trying to see if they could spot any goats. That's like the most Mandy thing I've ever heard in my life. Absolutely. (laughs) If you told me there are goats, I'd be like, okay, I've seen a goat before. I really don't need to go up to a roof. But have you seen it from up here? That's what I would say. Don't care. It's going to be the exact same. (laughs) You haven't seen this view. So they were standing up there just trying to look at things or look for things, and they were keeping about six to seven feet of distance between themselves and the roof's edge. At some point, John reached into his pocket to pull out the card that he wrote for Valerie, and things quickly spiraled into a nightmare. John said that he tried to hand Valerie the card, but instead it hit the side of her hand and it fell to the ground about a foot away from them. John and Valerie both went to pick it up, but Valerie stumbled and took a couple of steps trying to regain her balance, but in an unstoppable and horrifying string of events, Valerie fell over the edge of the hotel roof. John's initial explanation of what happened led police to go up to the roof to look for the card that John had allegedly dropped on the ground. So the officer returns and tells John, hey, I can't find the card, and that's whenever John suddenly retrieves it from his pocket. So the card was actually still inside the plastic bag he put it in, which meant he either tried to give Valerie the card before actually taking it out of the bag, or he picked up the card, put it back in the bag before he went downstairs after Valerie fell. Neither explanation makes a ton of sense, but how dark is the explanation where he picked the card up after she fell off the roof and put it back in his pocket? Like, oh gosh. So John explained that Valerie had been wearing her slippers, and he thought maybe she shuffled her foot wrong, took a misstep, and that led her to stumble off the roof. He alleged that he heard her scream as she fell over the ledge, and then he ran downstairs and found Valerie lying on the ground. Whenever he found her, he said she wasn't moving and her legs were visibly broken. It was clear to John that she was either unconscious or she was dead. Detectives did a thorough investigation on the roof and found several interesting things. The roof of the hotel did not have a sheer edge. Rather, there was a low protecting wall that was about 16 inches high before you get to the ledge. They found no evidence of any loose tiles and no evidence of rain that day. The conditions that day were calm with clear visibility and a breeze. So detectives decided to retrace John's steps that day. So they visited the store where he bought this greeting card and they spoke to the clerk there. Her recollection of seeing John that day was different than what John had described. The clerk said that John hadn't come in by himself that afternoon, that Valerie was actually with him. And remember, he had told officers that she was at the pool while he's being, you know, a good husband and going to get this card for her at the store. But there's this other witness that day who saw a lot that he wanted to share with police as well. A man named Philbert had a house that just happened to overlook the roof of the hotel that Valerie fell from. And on that day, he just so happened to be out on his balcony with a pair of binoculars. Wow. I got to imagine it's the goats. He's looking at the goats as well. (laughs) Yeah, but can you imagine looking with a pair of binoculars? I can't. can't, And seeing something like that? No, absolutely not. But what he told police he saw completely changed everything. According to Philbert, he heard a woman scream. And when he looked towards the direction it came from, he saw a woman going over the roof backwards. So at the time Philbert first saw her, she was in the air, but about level with the roof, and she was falling with her butt pointed down and her feet pulled to the level of her chest. 
Philbert said that at the same time this woman was falling, he saw a man standing on the roof facing the direction of the ledge, but he couldn't say how far from the edge the man actually was. And I mean, this is a split second thing, like just to even have the like mental capacity to hear a noise turn and take all of that in. Yeah, it's a lot. It happened really quickly. Right. Absolutely. After Valerie landed on the ground, Philbert yelled over to John. John had just been standing there, but after he hears Philbert, he begins pacing back and forth with his hands on his head. John then ran down the fire escape to the ground. Philbert immediately dialed the hotel and told them what he just saw. And then he spoke with the police. You always wonder in these things like, okay, does somebody have a motive to make up a story? But whenever you hear him say, I called the hotel immediately and now you've got another person involved in this, you're like, okay, let's take this seriously. We still have more to get into and we will right after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. We've been using Masterclass for a few months now, and I am loving it. So much so that I've even skipped some of my favorite shows just to sneak some lessons in, so you know they must be good. I've run the gamut on classes I'm taking, from writing comedy with David Sedaris to Gordon Ramsay teaching cooking, and now I've started a fitness and wellness fundamentals with Joe Holder. If you aren't familiar with Joe, he is trained with celebrity clients like Naomi Campbell and Bella Hadid, but Joe has this way of speaking about fitness and health that isn't just about looks, but about helping you feel your best. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace, which is really helpful. You can learn knife skills with Gordon Ramsay, improve your communication skills with Robin Roberts, or learn how to design stunning floral arrangements with Maurice Harris. With over 100 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. What I really love about these classes is how it feels more like individual conversations with these people who are the best in their field. It's like getting a peek inside their brains, and I'm really just soaking up all I can. With Masterclass, you can watch classes on your TV, your phone, computer, or there's even an audio version you can listen to. You can take notes along with your classes, and the classes are around 10 to 15 minutes a piece, so you're getting a ton of information to take in and digest, and it really just makes me so excited for the next class. We highly recommend that you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass, and as a Moms and Murder listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash momsandmurder now. That's masterclass.com slash momsandmurder for 15% off masterclass. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. I'm a worst-case scenario type of gal. I wish I wasn't, but no matter what fun, exciting thing is being planned, my brain will always drain the fun out of it and remind me of all the things that can go wrong. This has really been my way of life for as long as I can remember, and it can be exhausting. And that's not even counting the regular life stuff that's actually happening that's stressing me out, which is why I'm so glad to have my BetterHelp counselor to talk through all these big things and the small things that feel big. BetterHelp is a great way to take care of yourself. Sometimes life can be overwhelming or hard to navigate. I find that being able to talk to my BetterHelp counselor is invaluable, whether I'm making big life decisions or just needing to vent and get some perspective. My BetterHelp counselor is there to help me through it all. And BetterHelp is counseling done on your time. BetterHelp helps connect you to a counselor that you can talk to without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash moms. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Okay, so before the break, we were just talking about now this investigation into John Bauman's second wife's strange death. So the duty manager at the hotel, a man named Avon, told the officers that he was on the second floor of the hotel at about 5 p.m. when he heard a scream and then what sounded like something possibly hitting the fire escape. He ran downstairs to see what happened, and on his way down, he ran into one of the housekeepers who told him about hearing a similar thing. Avon and this other employee then went outside and looked around in the back of the hotel, and there they saw a woman lying on the ground. Avon noticed that John was standing in the fire escape, looking over, but when Avon saw him, John moved off the fire escape. So according to that story, it doesn't really seem like John was actually all that concerned or moving very quickly to get, you know, to where Valerie was. Right. 
Examining the scene surrounding Valerie's body gave officers more clues as to what actually happened. Her body was found 14 feet out from the building, which posed a problem for this accidental fall theory. Civil engineers determined that it took just 2.48 seconds for Valerie to reach the ground, and her body would not have landed so far from the building if she had fallen accidentally. They said only a horizontal force, such as a push, would cause her to land 14 feet away. If she were to have fallen by accident, she would have landed closer to the building and would have most likely landed on a 9-foot-wide platform that was about 10 feet above the ground. Although two people claimed to have heard something hit the fire escape, the evidence was clear and showed that Valerie did not hit the fire escape at all. She landed 14 feet away from the building. But it does make me wonder if John was seen on the fire escape, like maybe people heard him jumping down or jumping on it or, you know, or getting on it somehow. That would kind of explain, I guess, why they heard noise on the fire escape if he was actually the one kind of up there. So due to all of this evidence pointing to Valerie's death being intentional and the fact that John was the only person there, he was arrested. And because the police did not feel satisfied with his story about how Valerie ended up going over the roof, he was also charged with her murder. A deeper investigation into the couple's marriage was initiated, and it was learned that when John had made the reservations for the Royal Antiguan Hotel for their second time, this is after they already went to Barbuda and now they're coming back to the Royal Antiguan Hotel for the last couple days of their trip, he told them that he needed a room for two for the first three nights, but he only needs a room for one person on the fourth and final night, which is also stupid because why Why would you do why that? Why would you even do that? Why that would you even do that? Make- There's no reason you couldn't just say two people the whole time. Exactly. And like, how would they even know? It doesn't make any sense. It's that's crazy. That's like one of the dumber things. Yeah. uh, There. Yeah. So the investigators spoke with Valerie's family and they learned that things were even more suspicious than they had thought. Her son told them that his mom was afraid of heights and it was unlikely that she would have been okay going to the roof in the first place. He also said that Valerie was really not a drinker, and he was surprised to hear that she was so intoxicated. Victor said that his mom's relationship with John wasn't as happy as John made it out to be, and the couple had verbal arguments that led to a lot of tension in their relationship. In the years leading up to Valerie's death, these instances became more and more frequent, and Victor recalled a time when he and his wife were traveling with John and Valerie, And John was driving way too fast. So Valerie asked him to slow down a couple of times, but he was ignoring her. And eventually he just angrily, you know, stopped the car and told Valerie not to tell him how to drive and kind of did like, a, oh, if you can do it better, then you take the wheel kind of thing. And he said, you know, if that was what she wanted, then he would pull over and let her do it. So she just said, you know, no, I just want you to slow down. And John kind of snapped at her, told her to be quiet. And again, you know, this sarcastic, you can drive if you want to thing. So it was just kind of those types of little arguments and bickering and really just terrible treatment of her on, you know, on John's part from what it sounds like, because I've known people like that that are just kind of very like that. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, like just stop. It's miserable. Yeah. Exactly. And it makes it miserable for everybody else, too. For sure. Not even counting the poor person that it's being directed to. So it was revealed that in the event of Villary's accidental death, John would receive $200,000 in life insurance through a policy he took out through his job in the year before her death. He had the same amount of coverage as well on himself. Less than two weeks after Valerie died, Someone filed a claim for her death, but the address was not John's home address. It was some other local address. To this day, it's not clear who actually filed that claim, but it could have been John. He could have had it mailed from jail, but we really just don't know for sure. When Valerie's kids were notified that she passed away, they went to her house. One of her daughters actually had a key to the house, but the key strangely didn't work that day. So once they were able to get inside, they did find Valerie's key ring, but oddly enough, None of those keys on it worked for the house. John explained this away by saying he had changed the locks just shortly before the couple went on vacation, but he had no reasonable explanation why he even did this. It's thought that John actually never intended to return to the address that the police had for him, but he was going to go to that address where the insurance forms were mailed from. 
the insurance would only be paid out to John. So even if he didn't mail the forms, he would actually be the only one able to receive this money, which makes it seem more likely that he was actually the one who mailed in the forms because then well, yeah, who would who have mailed would? them in? Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's implied that John changed the locks on the house to make it more difficult for Valerie's children and family to gain access. On March 25, 1996, John's trial began in Antigua and Barbuda. The prosecution was not allowed to bring up how John was charged with the murder of his first wife, Trudy, or the murder of Dean Pence. The prosecution's case was that John had, quote, grown tired of Valerie, end quote, and wanted to collect her $200,000 of life insurance. They said John was a calculating person who pushed Valerie off the hotel, then tried to cover it up as an accident, lying along the way to explain away evidence. Their entire case was circumstantial and relied upon witness testimony from Filbert, the detective, and the civil engineers. One of the engineers, Bernard Lewis, testified that in his opinion, Valerie was pushed, which is why she was found 14 feet from the base of the hotel. On cross-examination, Lewis admitted that if the body fell on the fire escape before hitting the ground, then his opinion and calculations would be null and void, and it would affect his opinion on whether or not she was pushed. This is important to note for later whenever we get into John's testimony. The other engineer, Warren Workman, testified that he agreed with Lewis's opinion. He added that if she had fallen accidentally, she would have landed closer to the building and most likely landed on a nine-foot-wide metal platform that was around 10 feet above the ground. This platform formed part of a fire escape on the outside of the building, bounded by a metal railing. Just like John's defense had been in Trudy's death, John said that Valerie's death was an accident. He said that he loved his wife very, very much and was grief-stricken over her death. The defense had a taxi driver and hotel staff members testify that during their vacation, John and Valerie acted like normal lovers. They use that word, and I know that's your favorite word, so I used Very it Very favorite. <laughs> Thank you for sticking with it. The defense actually called a civil engineer of their own, a man named Oliver Davis, and he pretty much didn't contribute a lot to the um, case except to testify that the prosecution's engineers that we talked about a second ago, Lewis and Workman, that they were completely incompetent. He didn't really offer any explanation for how Valerie landed so far away from the building, but he just said, these other guys are not right with what they said. Right. So John sort of took the stand in his trial. In Antigua, you have the option to either give a sworn statement or an unsworn statement. So he chose the unsworn version. He told the jury that the relationship between himself and Valerie was very close, very warm, very lovable, and they often traveled together. So this is what John said about Valerie's fall. He said, quote, As I was coming up from picking up the card, she was falling over the side of the roof. She seemed midair, and she disappeared from my sight because of the wall. I went to the edge of the roof. I don't know how far it was when I saw her going over. I dropped the card again. I saw her falling further and further away. I saw her hit the railing of the fire escape. There was also a second scream before she hit the railing. When she hit the railing, I saw her body flipped, then she hit the ground. So John, up to this point, had never mentioned seeing her body hit the railing until he made this statement in court. And this was something that he said, of course, after he's heard the civil engineers testify that her body could have technically hit the railing and still landed that far away from the building. So he kind of took that and ran with it. And he's like, oh, yeah, that's what happened. That's how she was 14 feet away, not because I pushed her. So by changing his story, John caused himself some major issues. The evidence showed that Valerie's body would have only taken two and a half seconds to fall the whole way to the ground, yet by what he's saying, he was somehow in that two and a half seconds able to get to the edge of the roof in time to see her hit the railing of the platform, which was 10 feet above the ground, so it would have been actually a little shorter distance. So how would that really right. even be possible? And just to register what's even happening, like. I'm going to need at least right. half a second there to even start moving. So on April 4th, after deliberating for two and a half hours, the jury of nine found 54-year-old John guilty of murder. He was immediately sentenced to death by hanging. As he was taken out of the courthouse back to the prison, a crowd of Antiguans cheered and yelled things like, quote, you deserve to hang. You think you could come here and get away with it? And you deserve to die. Valerie's family later told the Chicago Tribune that jurors had told them they didn't believe John's story. Her family said, quote, the jurors said they couldn't believe this man 
who said he loved his wife so much, would just watch her fall that he made no attempt to grab her leg or save her, end quote. Valerie's youngest child, Victor, told the Tribune that he, quote, found it ironic that it took the Antiguan justice system with fewer resources than American law enforcement to put John Bowman behind bars, end quote. Valerie's daughter, Pam, said, quote, it makes me crazy to think that if these 12 people, the ones she's referring to the ones that were on the jury for Bowman's first wife, had done their job, my mom would still be alive, end quote. Victor told the Chicago Tribune, quote, I think now we're free to deal with the loss of our mother. We were scared he'd come back, and we've been angry for so long, end quote. One of John's daughters, Helen, told the Tribune, quote, I grieve over what this has done to our family. The whole thing has just been a horror, end quote. On September 15, 1997, the Antigua and Barbuda Court of Appeal confirmed John's conviction. John then appealed to the Privy Council. On May 25, 2000, the council dismissed John's appeal. It was official. He would be executed by hanging. Here's a little fun fact. According to the Chicago Tribune, once prisoners are executed in Antigua, the law requires that they be buried within the walls of the prison, which was built in 1735. So literally to haunt everyone that's in prison, I guess. That's crazy. And it was recently on an episode that we were joking about that, I think, about not joking about it, but we had talked about how um, we weren't sure for sure where people were buried after you know, when they Some of us thought they were always buried at the prison. Some right. of us just thought that. Yeah. Well, apparently here in, in – not just at the prison, but in the walls. Like that is <laughs> – In the walls. That is wild. I was not expecting that at all when I read that before. That adds like, a what? new horror to even being in prison there. Like there's, there's prisoners in the walls. Like, oh, my gosh. I can't wrap my brain around this <laughs> at all. Yeah, that's a little much. On May 31st, just six days after his appeal was dismissed, 58-year-old John was found hanging by a sheet in a cell. Valerie's family felt relieved when John died. Her son Victor told the Chicago Tribune, quote, this was almost the best answer. Now there's no question that he will ever come back and haunt this family. And at the same time, we did not have to struggle with the issue of whether the island of Antigua should hang him or make him spend the rest of his life in that prison, end quote. John's daughter, Helen, said that her father's death was painful, even though she believes that John killed her mom and Valerie. She said, quote, it's been very horrible for our whole family, and now it's going to continue to be horrible, end quote. At the time of John's death, Helen was the only one of John's three daughters that believed he was guilty. This, as you can imagine, drove a wedge between the sisters, and Helen became estranged from them. I can't imagine losing your mom, believing that your dad did it, and your siblings don't. And how do you ever? Yeah, how do you that ever would be grapple really with hard. that? That's yeah, that would be really, really hard. I can't imagine. Yeah, um, that's terrible. What do you think, Melissa? How many out of three do you think he was responsible for? For sure, two. The first one, I can see how they just didn't have enough evidence. But Trudy, it doesn't make any sense to me. Me either. That, I mean. Just just the sequence of events. She just happened upon this cup of gas, and then she has a campfire cooker something. Like, when do you even come in contact with those two things? I might come in contact with, like, the campfire – not campfire, but you know what I'm talking about – once every three years, but to be the same day. And if I spill gasoline on myself, you know what I'm going to do? Change my clothes. Right. And – Immediately. She was pronounced dead shortly after 9 a.m. So that means like there was a lot going on there like at the in the 8 o'clock hour of the morning. Like what? why did oh they gosh. have a campfire going and all that, like the light going? I don't – it didn't – none of that makes any sense. Why? You know, that – it's just really far-fetched. It's such a detailed story that does not make any sense. But it's kind of like enough plausible things that you're like, huh. But I think his defense in that case did a great job to be able to convince that one juror that, yeah. you know, he was not guilty. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think um, all I of them? I think he is guilty of all of them. I think yeah. I understand why he was not able to actually go to trial for the first one because I do understand that they did not have really any evidence to support that it was him other than the fact that, yeah. you know, they thought he was the last person to talk to him. In hindsight, I would say sure. – Yes, I think he also killed Dean. Yeah, super sad all the way around. Yeah, I, very I, sad. Yeah, super sad. Mandy, are you ready to do Last Thing Before We Go? I am so ready to do Last Thing Before We Go, and I'm 
I hope that you're excited because this is just a rare opportunity that we have on last thing before we go. (laughs) It is such a rare opportunity. So um, if you're listening to this, you're not actually listening to criminality now, even though right now on criminality, we would normally be talking about reality shows. (laughs) Moms and Murder and Mandy watched a reality show. She watched the ultimatum and basically texted me with an ultimatum, like, hey, (laughs) if you want to talk to me about this show, this is the one time I'm watching a reality show. So you need to watch it. So of course I watched it. Yes. Um, I know. I I was so excited. (laughs) I actually didn't know if you were going to or not. And then, yeah, so it was totally, I like to take credit. This was my idea. I saw it and I was like, I want to watch that. And uh, yeah, I got so excited. I texted Melissa. I was like, are you going to watch this? Because it looks like there's high potential for just really good drama. And there was. (laughs) Yeah, just mess. Okay, so I just wrote down the names of the couples. So spoiler alerts, we're not holding anything back because we've seen it all. And in a week from now, nobody will care about this. So we have to get it out now. Um, Mandy, do you want to just go through the couples and kind of give your thoughts on them? Okay. Yes. So I'll go through the boringer ones first. How about um, Alexis and Hunter? Remember, uh, they end up getting engaged on the show. Like, Yeah, and it was like, it was kind of like really weird and forced oh so let me say this before so if you haven't watched the show the little bit of like all you need to know is these couples go on the show hosted by nick and vanessa lachey and they are giving each other an ultimatum one or the other is saying if you don't marry me then we break up they end up doing each couple ends up separating partnering with somebody else they live with them for three weeks come back together at the end they decide do they want to stay together and get married get engaged or do they want to separate so that's the premise truly of this entire thing it's an ultimatum to get married or not which is everyone's favorite ultimatum (laughs) i know you're gonna go the distance with this one so yeah so the ultimatum so alexis and hunter hunter paired up with somebody alexis did not and she was pretty salty about it what did you think about the two of them so i thought alexis was way too much of a diva and she was just like i i thought like she was a could have been a genuine person but then the way that she was treating people because they were politely saying that they were not interested in her and she was turning it into a whole thing. I was like, okay, calm down, girl. Like not everybody is going to be for you or is going to like you. And like, I thought that nobody was really mean to her, but she really went next level with it and just made it out to be a lot more than it was. And so then I started just not liking her from that point on. I was just like, no, you're too much. Like you're too much. He seemed nice, right? And like he seemed nice enough. And I was also wondering, like, I don't know. I thought that I he was too nice for her because she seemed very like a diva. Like I said, she liked, she wanted what she wanted. She was very clear that money was important to her, right. and um, that that was like a selling point for her in a husband was that she didn't want to be the breadwinner of a relationship. She wanted to have a man to take care of her, and that's how she thought it was going to be. And so even when she was like dating around in the group she would be saying that to people. And so that was actually a reason why a couple of the guys were like, yeah, I don't think that we're going to work then because I don't want that kind of pressure and I don't have that kind of money. So, um, so, but there were, there were valid, there were valid reasons, you know, that people were not choosing her and she just took it really personal and was just like, anybody who doesn't want to be with me is just, um, I mean, she called people like names, like a-holes and stuff. I was like, wow. Like she was not happy. No. Um, you know what my theory on them is? So they end up getting engaged at the table randomly before this really kicks off. So, which is kind of like, there's no rules really on these shows. So it's like, oh, wow, there's a surprise. But my theory is that he, his mom is like her because her, his mom is a wedding planner or whatever. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious too. (laughs) Right. But I think that his mom might be like her. So he's used to that. And that's why, because I can't figure them out as a couple otherwise. Like I need something like Freudian to make sense in this. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's all I can You're probably up, right. You're probably so right on that. That's, I mean, maybe the best I've ever felt about a prediction. Oh um, my gosh. But then when they were saying that the mom, of course, can you imagine getting married and your husband-to-be's mother is the is a wedding planner and wants wedding? to plan your wedding? Like, oh my gosh. That sounds so, so fun awful. fact, my sister's husband's mom basically planned their wedding, but that's because my sister was like, I don't really want to do this. Like, I, it's just going to stress me out. And so they ended up having a beautiful wedding, but like, it's a different attitude of just being like, I don't want to do this. You yeah. want to do this? Make it how you want. Yeah, I guess it would work out okay if that was your your attitude and outlook I don't think it. Alexis is like that. No, though. I what feel like she think? also – no, I think Alexis wants control and wants what she wants. 
Okay. How about next couple? Let's do, are you good with Lauren and Nate? Remember okay. Lauren and Nate? Yeah. So I will just be out front and say that Lauren was my favorite person on the yes. show. I thought that she was the most um, level-headed. I thought she really thought things through in her life and took things seriously. And um, it felt like she obviously really did love Nate, but like her big thing oh, yeah. was that she didn't want to have kids. And I had totally respect that. Kids are not for everybody. Sure. And that's a huge decision. And by the time you're her age, like you have decided that. And so I yeah. didn't like how Nate was like taking it as like a, oh, I think I can help her work through this. I'm like, work through All what? Of the guys like, were. That was so annoying to me. Yes, how every Gross. single guy was like, is that something that you think you could work through? I'm like, what do you mean work through? It's not a problem. Like she doesn't want I kids. Know. <laughs> like, you know, it's like very, yeah, this isn't a weekend thing. Like kids are forever and they are a lot. And have I mentioned engineering? You don't know what kind of kid you're going to get. It can be a <laughs> lot of work. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, they also, that was a weird situation when it came down to it because Nate, um, poor Nate, like kind of got the short end of the stick. Like he... Didn't really have anybody Women to be pick. running. Nobody yeah, wanted Nobody Nate. wanted him. And he was down to the last, like, desperate attempt and realized that he was going to be left hanging with nobody um, to pair up with. And he just randomly proposed to her. And she crazy, like, crazy enough said yes, which I thought was nuts because I'm like, okay, this issue with the kid thing is, like, a it's still, it's still a problem. Like, you still have to figure it out, which they did say after they had the proposal, you know, she did, they went back to their room and she did say, like, we still have to, like, go to therapy or something and figure this out. Right. And hopefully they do do that. But um, I don't think, personally, they should get married. I do not think they should get married. I think it's going to end bad. I think he has anger issues. I think I'm he does, too. It. I think he does have anger issues. And I think he has, like, this very idyllic version of what a family should look like right. and it's going to be very hard to make that happen with somebody who doesn't have that vision for themselves it seems like they are two totally different people and i agree with what you said about her being level-headed until she said yes whenever he said it i'm like girl <laughs> girl just be like no it makes better tv anyway right <laughs> um <laughs> okay let's go uh next how about hmm who do you want to do uh shanique and randall okay what do you think about them I loved Randall. I actually really um, did. You? Liked I him. thought he was annoying. Oh, I liked him, and I actually liked her too. I just I didn't know her. if I liked them together. Okay, I agree with that. So I like Shanique way more than I liked Randall. Um, Randall, to me, I feel like was a little bit immature for Shanique, and so sure. I, I feel like kind of she felt the same way um, about him. Also, I felt like that guy just talks too dang much. He says too much, and he talks in circles, and. Yeah, <laughs> I just wasn't I don't know. I understood why she felt that he was not fully like. I don't know, maybe he, maybe it's just maturity that he lacked. I, I can't put my finger on it, but I don't think they were a good couple. I did like her, though. No. And I thought that yeah. she she was she did seem to me like she was in a place where she was ready to take a relationship to the next level. And I definitely don't think he is. No, I would agree with you. I would like to go on record saying all these people, except for one, were in their 20s giving ultimatums about being married. And they're all like, we've been together for one year, four months, and three days. And I don't have right. a ring. And I'm like, what is going on? I, know. I would like this show so much more <laughs> if they were like in their 30s or, you know, like it's been right. a while. Right. But I'm like, come on, guys. This is – you met after COVID. I don't even want to hear about this. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. How about Ray and Zay? Wait, Ray and Jake were together, right? As the couple? No. Well, originally it was Ray. Oh, and wait, Zay. sorry. That's my bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See how I forget? How, because I know. things it's... got really confusing there. Okay. It did. <laughs> okay, so Ray and Zay. So at first, I didn't like Ray. I didn't think I liked her because when they first were introducing them in the beginning, I got like, I was a little like sad for Zay because she could never say anything nice about him like yeah and so like and and he brought that up saying like oh I could talk about how much I love you and things I love about you forever you know go on and on but whenever I you know it comes to me like all you have to just say is like yeah you know I love you blah 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 right and um but even just her like face about it all and like I don't know if she intentionally meant to come across that way but like she just looked like she was so 
salty and sour and just like, oh my gosh, how dare you ask me to tell you why I like you, you know? Like, right. It's like, I will say at the end, she said like on the reunion, looking back, she was like, oh wow, I looked so closed off. Like, I don't think a lot of people on that show have self-reflection. And so I was right. like, way to, way to go. Yeah. But she, and I can see, I can come off that way for sure sometimes if, if people are being very like heartfelt, like people know not to even tell me or they're like, you can just go back to what you're doing if they say something nice to me because I don't know how to handle it. Yeah. And I felt like she was kind of that way. Like, okay, 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 okay. You know how I feel, you right. know, kind of like that. Well, I started, but he needs it. Yeah. Well, I kind of at first felt like, well, maybe she's just not the type of person who's really good at expressing her feelings with words and stuff like that. And like, you know, maybe I'm just giving her, you know, a hard time and sure, you know, I should just be feeling, you know, a little sympathetic towards her. Maybe she just really doesn't know how to express herself. But then she didn't have any problem expressing herself with Jake. So I don't think that was the problem. Yeah. So speaking of Jake, um, Jake and I, I liked Zay. I think he has some stuff to work out. I think he's. I think he's a... too much, like too much, ready to party still. And I don't know that he's ready to settle down. I know, but I felt bad because he had a bad childhood. So then I yeah, always, yeah, I know. So there was just like pieces of me that I was like, okay, well, this makes sense. But boy, all this really told me is I'm so glad I'm not dating and my husband's yes. stuck with me. <laughs> um, so sorry for for you singles out there if you're looking for somebody. The dating pool seems rough. Um, speaking of uh, Jake, though, let's go to April and Jake. So they came there together. A April was 23. Jake was 26. He had been in the military. They've been together a year and a half. And she wants to be have babies. She wants to get married. Babies, babies, babies. Married, married, married. Like that was – it was almost just like a checklist I felt like with them. What did you think? Um, her, I, I yeah. April – is very cute and very adorable and very endearing, but she needs to calm down a lot when it comes to, like, doing all of these things in life. Like, she – everything that she wants for herself is are, like, wonderful things, and I'm sure she will have them one day, but, like, I don't know. I guess it just brings me back to the whole premise of the show. I feel like out of all the couples, I felt the the worst for them because I felt like Jake – really did not want to go on the show and she yeah. you know she definitely was like we're doing this and this is the ultimatum and um I felt bad because I felt like Jake really did care about her and didn't want to end their relationship but like right. you said like haven't been together that long still really young why are we in this big rush to not only get married but then have kids and I'm sure that's what he was thinking too like yeah it's one thing to put a ring on it but then as, you know as soon as we get married she's going to be asking about having a baby and it's like am I ready to commit to like all of those things right now? It's like, right. you know, and, and I just don't think it's fair. You know, if you actually really do love somebody and do see a future with them, issuing them an ultimatum like this in the first place to me is just crazy because I would never want a marriage that started with an ultimatum. Like that's I've heard that <laughs> sometimes it works out great. And I think it's a personality thing. Like some people might need that push. I'm not interested in it, but you know, it, I guess it can happen. Um, but April to me seemed very young. Like even though she's saying all these older things, like I want to be married, I want to have kids, I'm going to be a mom. I'm like, but you're laying in bed all day long and because you're sad and like right. you can't do that as a mom, like just right off the bat. So I'm just like, I don't think you have a realistic view of life. But I right. mean, nobody does before they have kids. You just don't know what it's like. Um, not in a negative way. You just don't. I don't know what it's like to, you know, live somebody else's life. But um, yeah, I just, I would have a hard time being in a room with her. I feel like she would zap all my <laughs> energy. She's really definitely an energy, a, an, an energy sucker. Like an energy vampire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. So last couple who they tried to make like the love story of this show, Madeline and Colby. I don't what like What are your it. thoughts? You I heard the way like I said it. it. I don't like it. I do not like it. Colby I is like a either character. Okay. At one point, he was wearing a straight up pocket watch. I missed the watch. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he's trying to be um, like a character actor. You're right. Like he he's is. like wears a cowboy hat one time. And I'm like, <laughs> I did not get that from you. Yeah, um, he is. And like, I did not like his personality. Um, no. I did not understand why Madeline was so attracted to him and talked about this like fiery connection that they had and how he was just so like charming and amazing and like to me he seemed like a regular douchebag yes yes right? just yeah just like straight that's like that's what he was and um I don't understand it and 
I don't know what happened. Okay, so did we not get to see something that happened? Did they all go out one night and like a bunch of crap went down and then they they talked about it? Or did I just miss footage of them going out one night? You didn't miss footage. I think one thing I, my one of my bigger complaints with this show is like, number one, continuity. And I felt like they missed so much stuff. Like we'd meet one person's family, but we wouldn't meet the other person's. And I get that it's like, can be like, boring because it is but like I need to know April's background because I have a lot of theories about her and it would help me understand her but there was just a lot like all of a sudden they're just it's three months later I I don't know the whole thing it was just like it was like a time warp for me so we never saw them going out but we heard about it they kept referring to it like keep the cameras on them people this is where the fights are happening right and but it was like that was what a lot of the conversation was about was like this night where some of them went out obviously not all of them we still don't know fully what happened but they went to a club and a bunch of craziness went down like there was people there that were hooking up with people from the club and like not related to the show and it turned into this whole night full of drama so that night Colby I guess exchanged numbers with some girl and continued talking to her for like the next three weeks while they were still doing the experiment and then tried to oh no this is called the experience uh, the uh <laughs> love is blind is the experiment oh. <laughs> i took that note oh okay so the experience um <laughs> it annoyed but, me but yeah so it just turned into a mess you know and then colby tried to tell madeline that you know he did it because he didn't really have a match that he was you know right. he was so into her he didn't really want to be with anyone else but he wanted to still give her the full experience so he basically cheated on her I guess I don't the whole thing is weird because they're going That's on weird. the show intentionally to be with another person but I guess it's you know obviously they've agreed to do it within the show right but not for him to go out to a nightclub and just talk to random people on the street right so um so that's what he did though and uh and then tried to turn it around and gaslight her and say that you know it was all for her and how how could she be so upset with him one of these idiots said something like oh i want you to really do this experience like i want you to really just get yourself in this experience like just let yourself go i'm like you want to bang somebody else and so you're <laughs> telling the other person <laughs> I was like, okay, buddy, I I see what cards you're playing here. Yeah, how awkward, all that. But yeah, so I didn't think Madeline and Colby were going to get married because, um, or get stay together because she told him they weren't, uh, that it wasn't going to work out because of that whole thing. And then he wouldn't take responsibility. But then the big shocker that came at the end when he proposed and she said yes, but that wasn't even the most shocking part, Melissa, was it? <laughs> no. Then they literally get married there, which, by the way, why are they dropping these people off in, like, the back of a murder field and making them walk, like, 30 miles to the meet sun. the person? Yeah. yeah. Like, by the time I get to you, give me a bottle of water. I don't want to hear you talking. I can't breathe right now. And you're so, supposed to be knowing if you're going to, like, I mean, you know, obviously you're going to like your proposals, whether or not you're going to say yes. But it's like if you even if you are going to say yes, like I'd be so mad. I'd be like, this is supposed to be like a happy day of my life. I'm getting proposed to. And like, well, I don't want to. There's gnats all around me. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. But it was bizarre how he was just like, would you get married to me today right now? I don't trust that situation. Don't do that no, to me. No, that I felt very that. like, I feel like I have a moment. I can trap you into this and I'm doing Absolutely. it. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, for what other reason? But then what is the big reveal at the reunion, Mandy? Bum, bum, bum. They Literally, are bum, expecting bum, bum. a beautiful bundle of joy. Oh, yes. I'm so happy that things worked out this way for them. A I mean, baby girl. Babies are I wonder how long ago that reunion was filmed. I wonder if she's had the baby by now. Probably. But here's the math. At one point, she says she's seven months pregnant. And at the one another point, Zay says, or... Zay or somebody said um, something something when did this end six months ago so I'm like hang on so she was pregnant on the show here she might have been pregnant on the show I don't know but it could explain why they were like okay yeah let's go ahead and get married <laughs> yeah <laughs> like that's she's true like, mm, let's go ahead and do or this. she could have found out she was pregnant while they were still on on the show true I mean yeah it was it was a lot I think Nick and Vanessa Lachey I Okay, here's the thing about this I, show. This okay, I just so want to say on the record, I'm so sorry. I don't know how you feel, but I think Vanessa Lachey is one of the most obnoxious people I've the ever, worst. ever the watched. The worst. The <laughs> worst. 
How dare you think I could have thought anything other than <laughs> she makes me want to claw my eyeballs out. Whenever she was like, oh, don't worry, Nick. He's just 48. He doesn't know what winter girl is, hot winter Everything girl she said. And she's always oh. so, like, she said so many different little digs at him. Like, she's, I don't know. She was awful. She was awful. <laughs> not likable. And she's not likable on the other one. I, some people liked her on the other Love is Blind reunion. But I just, I don't enjoy her. Her. <laughs> I don't think Nick does either, so I don't feel like I'm going out on a limb right. with that one. I don't know how they've gotten this gig, but like now they're doing it, and I feel like we're watching our own reality show watching this, like a reality show within a reality right. show. And it's reality so show bizarre. inception. <laughs> yes. You know, I would love nothing more than the, for that to be what's happening. But, oh, and one thing about this show, the last thing I'll really say is compared to other reality shows. So like Married at First Sight, they have like the host kind of narrate throughout it. So it's like the couples today are going to blah, blah, blah. And I know that sounds kind of stupid or like we're in week three of this experience. But in this, there's nothing. Just right cheesy music throughout. And you have no idea what the time frame is like things just come up you have no idea so like as hosts they're not really like they don't add anything right no 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 (laughs) at all except you hear like pieces of like vanessa basically saying she and nick don't trust each other right and go through (laughs) each other's phones like you just basically hear their therapy session but otherwise i'm like get off my screen right yeah no i totally agree i totally agree so yeah final thoughts on it i thought um it was definitely worth watching i sometimes do get that wild hair and feel like watching a reality show and so this yeah. was a good one and I also would like to apologize for all the times that you have suggested other shows and I have just been like no and then randomly Absolutely I'll not. decide to watch like a terrible it's one. okay <laughs> it's okay I'm I'm fine I was like it's definitely not one of my favorite reality shows I've watched it wasn't messy enough is that right I mean like I wanted way messier I wanted hookups I wanted right. breakups I, I wanted think it could have been a lot better yeah yeah, I'm like, come on, you're with this person three weeks. So let's see what happens. Um, but I just wanted messy. Um, but I like Love is Blind more. I will definitely say that. I, I do like too. The stakes are higher. <laughs> yes, I do like Love is Blind. That's That one's yeah. a good one too. So. I want to see people really ruin their lives. Right. And that's really more <laughs> what I'm into. But yeah, okay, that was our dissertation on awesome. The Ultimatum. Uh, let us know if there's any other shows we should get Mandy to watch, like yeah. really good reality shows. She yeah. won't do it, but maybe. Yeah. Well, I just, like Melissa said, I want it to be super messy. So send send me the messiest ones that we have. Oh, yes, let's <laughs> do that. That'll be fun. All right, guys. That was it for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.